Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. It's mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 153 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program with the ALPO. Thank you for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can start off by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. And if you'd like to join the Alpo, you can for as little as $18 a year. For more information, join us at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find the ALPO on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And also, this this podcast also has a Facebook page. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode. And now, episode 153 of the Observer's Notebook, and we're talking Mars. Enjoy. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. And we're talking Mars, and that means we're talking Roger Venable. Welcome back, Roger. Thank you. Now, before we get into it, why don't you talk a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're located. You're retired now, maybe talk about that, that type of thing. So, so everybody gets yeah. to know who you are. Yeah, well, I'm old, and <laughs> uh, I uh, started observing Mars when I was... Uh, probably in about sixth grade, seventh grade, uh, with a small refractor. And uh, then we had a small reflector, a four-inch criterion reflector that we mm. looked at it with and so on. We could see some basic albedo features, but uh, mostly I've been a general uh, uh, solar system observer. Uh, hadn't concentrated on Mars too much, but... Uh, I wrote some articles about Mars for the journal years ago, and I think that Don Parker and Walter Haas sort of remembered that and remembered the drawings of Mars that I had fortunately uh, published in uh, Sky and Telescope, and they kind of asked me to be Mars coordinator. So that's how it happened, you know, and I, I said, I can't can't turn you guys down. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, Walter had a way of getting what he wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's just, was it going back, was there a person or some event that originally sparked your interest in astronomy? Actually, there was. And uh, it's really, uh, I, I don't know how, how many other people have a similar experience, but uh, when I was six years old, my father taught uh, uh, science 
in high school. Oh. And he brought home a refractor and it, it, I don't really know about the refractor, but it looked, you know, like the Unitron refractors that were advertised back in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And it probably had about a three inch aperture and uh, didn't have a clock drive or anything. It was like an altazimuth mounting. He set up in our backyard and he showed us the, the moon, which was a crescent moon, a thick crescent moon. And to me, you know, I had never seen anything uh, through a telescope and my brothers and sisters older than I thought it was quite interesting. And I looked at it and uh, the, the, the mounting would not hold still. And I looked through it. My father warned me that I wouldn't be able to see, see anything because it was no longer pointed at the moon. And I tried to point it and I swept slowly through the <laughs> area of the moon and I saw it, but at age six, I couldn't hold it in the field of view, but I probably saw it for one second uh. as it moved across the field of view. And I saw all these craters and <laughs> shadows and things. And I was, it was a, an immensely eye-opening experience for me to realize that there is so much more to see than what you can see with your naked eye. I mean, it was, it was amazing to me. And I all, since then, I always wanted to see more through a telescope. And to this day, I think the moon is the best initial uh, subject matter to show to a, you know, a, a kid who wants to look through a telescope. That, that's true because it's easy to see. And yet you go to, you go to you know, an outreach event and everyone wants to see the moon through a telescope. And just the draw drop moment you know, that most people have the first time they look through a telescope, it's, it's rewarding. It's, but you know that you're, you're, you're describing the exact same feeling I had, you know, the first time I looked through a telescope too. And I think everybody listening the first time they listened to look through a telescope, the same thing. That's very cool. Now, was that refractor your, your first telescope? Actually that belonged to the school. Oh, okay. I, I, I'm not sure why dad brought it home, but he, he brought it home several times. I only got to look through it once. I think he was trying to uh, discover whether he could uh, use it in his science classes, you okay. know, or something. But uh, after a PTA meeting, you know, kids like to get out in the dark and look through a telescope. And, <laughs> you know, sometimes things like that happen. But I don't think he ever learned the sky, the night sky at all, uh, and was never really able to, to use the telescope except to look at the moon. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's good. How did you get involved with the Alpo? You, you mentioned Walter, but how about before that? I mean, how did you well, discover the Well, I had some small telescopes uh, when I was young. And, um, you know, I'd seen the Messier objects and I used the Norton Star Atlas and mm -hmm. so on as a guide to the sky. And I remember I used Compton's Pictured Encyclopedia to learn the constellations. Um, and I read some books in the library and uh, I remember there was a shelf of books on astronomy, and sometime when I was in high school, I read them all <laughs> in the library. Um, but, um, you know, I, I was really fascinated with deep sky observing for years, and probably spent most of my time on that. I had uh, a couple of uh, Mead DS-16As, which had oh. a clock drive, 16-inch telescopes. Oh, wow. Guardies observed in my backyard and so on. And I actually did some rudimentary video through the DS-16A. Uh, 
I videotaped a couple occultations with a huge uh, video camera that recorded on tape instead of <laughs> uh, instead of the way we do now. Right, and this thing had to be strapped onto the uh, large telescope tube, and I had to use a mirror to reflect the light. You know, an additional mirror to reflect the light and, and a Barlow lens, uh, and and the, had to laboriously focus or something. I, I don't remember all the details, but. You know, uh, it was not easy to use this thing. <laughs> right. It doesn't sound like it. No. The old videotape. My goodness. <laughs> so um, how long have you been in the Oppo? Oh, I joined in 1987. Okay. I considered it for years, but I, I was just very busy. You know, mm -hmm. I just really didn't have any any time except to read Scott Telescope. That was, you know, and then do occasional observing through a telescope. I just didn't have time for Alpo programs and so on. So it took me a while to, to make room for that. Okay. But since the eighties, you've seen quite the evolution of the organization too, haven't you? Yeah. 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 So what are the, what are some of the highlights you think you've seen over the years? Oh, well, gee, now I wish I had more time to think of them. <laughs> uh, certainly uh, uh, some of the, best things I've seen are eclipses, especially solar eclipses. And I've really enjoyed going to a few of those. Um, the uh, One of the great highlights was uh, seeing the scars on Jupiter from uh, Shoemaker-Levy 9. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And I was watching the night of the impacts and watching mm -hmm. them develop and move across the face of Jupiter. And I, I wasn't able to see a flash when uh, fragment B hit. Fragment B was uh, very small. Some people actually hypothesized that it was mostly gas instead of a you know, mm -hmm. solid core of the comet. But uh, it left a mark, a faint mark <laughs> that didn't last long. And uh, But that was really an exciting time for, for me just to see that. Uh, Used to count meteor, meteor, meteors with my naked eye, and for a okay. long time I reported them to the uh, International Meteor Organization. And my vision became too bad to continue that. I, I just wasn't able to focus on a very wide field of view. Um, I pointed a telescope at the uh, the moon um, at the peak of the Perseid meteor shower. Uh, I think it was 1990, let's see. No, it was the Leonids in 1999. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, uh, I recorded one flash. Uh, I think I, I'm going to get this wrong. It's hard to remember all these things. I think maybe I recorded the flash the next year. Uh, but I, I, I uh, decided that there was too much uh, glare from the moon to record the dark side of the moon. So I began to observe visually. And I estimated that I was seeing one flash on the moon through my 16-inch telescope about every 15 seconds on the average. Wow. And uh, so I, I believe that I saw many Leonid flashes on the moon. And I, uh, this is the, the same shower for which David Dunham and, and Brian Kudnick videotaped meteor flashes on the moon. Okay. All right. And I claimed to have actually seen visually many. And I wrote a letter to the, you know, the uh, WGN, which is the uh, uh, journal of the International Media Organization, describing my experience. And uh, they 
published the letter, but my observation, I think, has been forgotten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. You really get excited when you see things like that. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned uh, Shoemaker Levy. And I remember that time. And, you know, no one really thought we'd see anything, you know, but I remember seeing Jupiter rotate around. There's a black dot and then another black dot. And another right. I'm like, I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, we're talking. We're talking to each other uh, just a few days after the Dart spacecraft slammed into the asteroid, and the images that are coming back now, the Earth-based images, are amazing. Yeah, you know, it's just like a huge cloud formed around this asteroid, uh, the moon of an asteroid. It's just amazing. It is. It's things you don't expect to see, and yeah. okay, now, now the science gets thrown up in the air. Now let's figure this out. We, uh, you know. Uh, we did some interesting things at my observatory. One night, um, I had planned this carefully uh, with the 16-inch telescope. We planned for a night when Pluto would be both at a maximum elevation in our sky, because Pluto was in the southern sky. Mm-hmm. And Sharon, uh, according to the Horizons Ephemeris, would be at maximal elongation from Pluto. And we got up there at uh, about 460 magnifications, and we saw Sheridan. Wow. And uh, there were five of us there. I uh, can probably name them. One of them is now my wife. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, John White and, uh, let's see, Mark uh, Moffat and uh, Jerome Leverett. And those were the five of us who, who saw it. And we Fantastic. all saw it, you know, and then we also could see it at, at the double that, about 920 magnifications. Uh, I'm not sure that improved the view. And uh, alone, I came back a few other times and also saw it again. So I've I've seen Sharon several times. That's impressive. I think I've seen Pluto once. <laughs> I don't want anyone to say ever that I've told Sharon that we have to stop meeting like this. Ah. <laughs> my, wife, my wife will hear that and not understand that it's a joke. <laughs> we have to be sure that I never say that. That's <laughs> funny. That's funny. Uh, so how did you get into Mars as the re- as a coordinator of the program? What 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 was it about? Well, I, I, I don't think I had a real special interest in Mars mm. at the time. It was one of the things that I enjoyed observing, you know. Mm-hmm. As I, as I said, I'd made some drawings of it and so on and, you know, paid attention to its, its features. Right. Um, I had never seen a dust storm on Mars at the time of the time they asked me to, you know, to be a coordinator. Mm-hmm. I had written about the about Phobos and its uh, eventual crashing into Mars uh, in the article in the Alpo Journal. And uh, I don't know if I had any other Mars. Oh, I had... Uh, witnessed uh, with the 16-inch telescope Phobos and Deimos on the same night, uh, saw Phobos on each side of the planet and Deimos on one side of the planet in that night of observing. So I've seen, and I've seen those two moons a number of times since. So I think because they knew that I had done these things, they just thought, and they had seen uh, a few other things that I'd written for the journal, uh, they figured I was probably capable of doing it or something. Fantastic. They may not have been correct, but they thought so. <laughs> well, you've done it for a while. You're doing a great job. So that's that's excellent. Now, now you talked about the 16-inch telescope. Is that your current equipment? I 
have uh, two 16-inch mirrors, uh, neither of which are being used. Okay. So right now, I uh, mostly observe occultations. Oh, and okay. uh, uh, <clears throat> I happen to have an additional astronomical responsibility. I'm vice president of the International Occultation Timing Association. Okay. But uh, one of the most exciting things that I've done, you know, what happens is you have a moment of great excitement when you see something happen. We had chased the uh, near-Earth asteroid Apophis uh, around the country, <laughs> setting up in various places in the country, trying to observe occultations by it. And uh, the Dunhams, uh, in, a, in a group of people, a campaign of many people lined up across the path trying to record an occultation. The Dunhams recorded two chords and Richard Nugent recorded one court down in Louisiana in early 2021. And uh, in follow-up, we tried to get some observations and we had misses, misses in uh, Japan and misses in Greece. And we wondered why, if we knew uh, where it was from the previous occultations, which measured extremely accurately, how come we had misses? And so, we had a couple more campaigns in the United States, and I got one hit way over on the extreme of all our cords that we had set up. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that gave us a clue that the observation in Louisiana was misleading uh, because the star position was not well known. It turned out to be a double star. Oh. Uh, so we, we said, well, we got to try to verify this. And I drove out to Arizona and set up five stations and with me was uh, norm carlson and kaiga trost and each of them set up one station and they each i put them in the middle and i had the flanks and each of them got a hit and i had a hit next to them we got three hits across apophis now you have wow. to understand apophis is uh a, something like 340 meters in diameter, not kilometers, meters. Wow. It's less than, it's a third of a kilometer in diameter. And so we have uh, been able to uh, accurize the orbit of this asteroid with phenomenal accuracy. In fact, accurate, accurize it sufficiently that now the uh, Yarkovsky effect uh, in the orbit of the asteroid has been more accurately calculated than that for any other asteroid uh, surpassing Bennu by a small amount. So, wow. This is, this is the, uh, gives you a, an idea of the accuracy to which occultation measurements can uh, locate the position of an asteroid. Interesting. Now, for those newer listeners or younger listeners that don't know what an occultation is, it's when, it's when one heavenly body passes in front of another. And yes. so, what, when, an, when an asteroid passes in front of a star, the star seems to blink out because the, the, uh, the asteroid's probably a lot dimmer than, than the star you're observing. So it actually disappears and it will disappear for a second or two and then pop right back in. So, and that's, that's the type of observation that Roger's talking about. That's amazing. Yeah. The thing, the thing about that particular observation was that we had been chasing this asteroid for the better part of a year. And when we finally got the, <clears throat> the final convincing hit that, that nailed down the orbit, this is the kind of thing that makes an old man jump up and down. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. And, th and this is science that our amateur astronomers are doing. 
which yeah. is which is one thing I love about this hobby that you don't need any professional. I mean, the professionals use the data that you give them. You know, they're they're not out there tracking these occultations of asteroids. It's amateurs that are doing it, and that's amazing. Yeah. That's great to have a contribution to science that way. And we're going to talk about an occultation later, but first, let's talk about Mars. <laughs> Mars is going to reach opposition to the Earth on December 8th, I believe, right? That's correct. Okay. So let's talk about the Mars section a little bit. Talk about you know, what what it, what its goals are and how long it's been around, that type of thing. Right now, I think we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,100 people in the Mars observers list that wow. uh, many of them are contributing observations. And uh, uh, I think they're on the message list just so they hear what other people are doing and get notified of other people's observations and so on. Most of them are lurkers. You know, that's fine. There's, you have to respect every lurker. At least they're expressing interest by being there. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And uh so, um, you know, it's, a, it's really an active group and there are a lot of observations being done, many hundreds of observations already in this apparition, which began, uh, oh, I guess around the turn of the year. Um, so it's uh, right now, <clears throat> Mars is roughly 11 arc seconds in apparent subtended diameter. And that's a sort of an intermediate size, uh, you know, small is smaller than six arc seconds, large, maybe larger than 15 or 16 or something. We're at about 11 okay. and getting as Earth is catching up to Mars in its orbit. And so Mars is getting closer and closer as Earth overtakes it as they go around the sun together. And uh, <clears throat> so the uh, opposition is when the Earth moves into a position between the sun and Mars. And that just happens to be on a night of a full moon in December, December 8th. Mm -hmm. And it happens that, uh, you know, the moon that night is going to move in front of Mars and from uh, northwestern Europe, probably extending from northern Germany, including the Scandinavian countries, the United Kingdom, France, and the Iberian Peninsula, and even Morocco, as well as most of North America, but excluding the Southeast where I live, uh, will be able to see this, uh, the, the moon pass in front of Mars. This is usually a fascinating thing to observe. And it's particularly good if you can get on the line uh, where it just grazes the edge of the moon. That is the moon, the moon uh, is moving faster than Mars in the sky and mm -hmm. the moon as it moves past Mars, doesn't completely uh, occult it, but rather may occult, say, half of the planet. So the edge of the moon seems to be floating past the planet. There are a couple of interesting things you can see with that. You can actually discern clouds, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, mountains on the edge of the moon in profile uh, as they obstruct parts of Mars beyond. And uh, in this particular case, if you're on the southern edge of the path, uh, <clears throat> this is a little difficult to explain, but there should be a very thin black line of the moon, which is not illuminated by the sun. The reason for this is that if you drew a line directly between Mars and the sun, the Earth is slightly south of that line. Now, it's south by uh, two and a half degrees or so. 
Now, what that means is that as you look at the moon, the lower two and a half degrees of the moon is not illuminated by the sun. Yeah. It will look black. And you won't, you can't see it because it's not illuminated. So ordinarily, if you shine a telescope at the moon, you can't see that unilluminated part. But if you, we call it the illumination defect. But if you, if, but if Mars is being grazed by the moon, there'll be a thin black line that two and a half percent of the moon's circumference, you know, of uh, actually two and a half percent, two and a half degrees of uh, the moon's circumference that thin black line between the body of Mars and the illuminated part of the moon. And it's just something interesting to see. And if you under, understand what's going on with it, it really makes a very impressive geometric impression. You see what it I mean? Like now, are you, are you going to shoot to be in that, that area? To, to I, see? I, I would like to see this. I mean, it'd be nice to travel up to Tennessee where I can get a look at it, you know, mm -hmm. but, uh, uh, I don't think that such an observation has scientific value, but it's it's just so fascinating to see. It, it, it would, yeah. Enjoy it, you know. I was not aware of that. That's interesting. Wow. Now, what if someone, let's talk about the Mars section for a little bit. If someone wants to contribute to the Mars section, what type of equipment would you recommend? Well, uh, Mars tends to be a little small in the eyepiece, and mm -hmm. I really think that uh, most uh, observers should should try uh, to get a six inch telescope, six inch or larger, because uh, a four inch telescope just doesn't quite seem to do it. I mean, you can see the, you know, the orange or ochre deserts and the greenish or bluish, uh, uh, what they used to think were seas. You know, the uh, dark areas on Mars have, tend to have a greenish or bluish tinge, um, perhaps, largely in contrast with the orange. You know, if you're standing next to something bright orange, why everything looks blue or green in contrast. So that's part of how Mars's colors are generated, I think, generated in the human brain. But uh, you see that with a four-inch telescope, but you just don't see it as clearly. You really see a lot of improvement when you move up to six inches. So I usually recommend people try to find a six-inch telescope to view Mars with. And you want to, and Mars requires fairly high magnification because it's so small. Right. And uh, nowadays, a lot of observers have turned their big, you know, deep sky imaging telescopes on Mars and so on. We see a lot of uh, general uh, imagers who are taking pride in the very fine uh, images of Mars that they can make. So we appreciate that. Right now, we're, we're having a dust storm on Mars and... <coughs> Uh, it's being imaged by Japanese observers. Uh, the dust storm obscures the normal features of Mars. So if, when the atmosphere is full of dust, all you see is the bright dust, and you can't see the surface of Mars beneath it. And uh, the dust clouds can have a variable uh, brightness, so you see false albedo features <coughs> such that the dark areas look like dark spots on Mars, but they're just less brightly uh, reflecting areas in the dust cloud. Um, <clears throat> so it's kind of interesting to follow a dust storm from night to night or even from week to week if it's a long-lasting one. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> you can't see it from North America right now or from Europe. And the reason is 
that Mars rotates on its axis roughly 24 hours and 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. That's about 40 minutes different from the Earth's 24-hour rotation. Well, that means that when the two are rotating, we see almost the same side of Mars every night, you see? But we're okay. only off by 40 minutes. Mars is 40 minutes behind us. Well, Japan right now is seeing almost the same side of Mars every night, and it happens to be the side that's having the big dust storm. Okay, so it's not a global dust storm like we've seen that's in the right. past. Okay. We call it a regional dust storm. Okay. And it's affecting uh, the Solus Lacus area, uh, uh, Mari Erythrium, and uh, Mari Acidalium, and Chrysi, uh, and uh, Aurori Sinus, and Margarifeter Sinus. And we're waiting for it to spread into uh, Tharsis and perhaps in the other direction toward, you know, into the Sinus Meridiani and uh, Edom and those areas and Noachus. So, okay. but we'll just have to wait and see if it spreads. Uh, sometimes it, it just calms down. It looks to me as though the first image of this storm was actually captured as a, a North Polar Front uh, spreading uh, from the North Polar Front up into the temperate latitudes uh, on about the 14th of September by Gary Walker, who's a Georgia here in Georgia. Mm. And, uh, and then we sort of lost track of it as Mar as that part of Mars with its 40 second delay, a uh, 40, uh, 40 minute delay uh, every rotation. It gradually became invisible to us here, but it became visible eventually to the folks in Japan and they have now been documenting a larger dust storm, and it seems to be uh, in the same area. So uh, it's just been—it's going to be fascinating to see whether that spreads or whether it's still visible when uh, that part of Mars rolls around into our view. That's, that's fascinating. But the side we're seeing has no dust storm, so the features are easier to see at this point, even though Mars is that's a little right. bit smaller. Okay. Now, how large is that's Mars going to be at opposition? Uh, you know, I've got that data. Pardon my poor memory. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be about 17.2 arc seconds in subtended diameter. Okay. Closest approach. Closest approach is a week before opposition. That sounds a little strange. You say, well, you mean it's not closest when it's directly opposite the sun? It's not. And the reason is that Mars uh, orbit is... Uh, relatively elliptical compared to Earth's round orbit. So as uh, Mars will, at opposition, just be on that part of its orbit where it's getting farther from the sun. So uh, the Earth will catch up with it in its orbit, but Mars will be farther from, from us at opposition than it was a week earlier, you see. Okay. Yeah, I, li I like these have these podcasts with the planetary coordinators around opposition. Because that's when the planet is its largest, and most people don't want to get up at two or three in the morning to pull their telescopes out. But this is when they become visible in the evening sky. But Mars observations, like you mentioned, you've been receiving them since January, probably. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. About so. Yeah. So, what do you what 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 did you see in the last apparition of Mars that's new or, or different or interesting this year? Um. <laughs> Now, um, 
in the last apparition, we had uh, a number of recurring dust storms that, that came from the south polar front. And uh, Clyde Foster, for example, documented one after another. Um, and these are analogous to the uh, storms that we get when the jet stream comes down uh, over North America. That jet stream is actually the North Polar Front. And, uh, but it, it swings down uh, into the temperate latitude. And uh, you know, the, there's also a South Polar Front that swings uh, northward into the temperate latitudes and so on. And Mars has these same effects with its polar fronts. Um, so we just observe these storms. Some of the storms are limited to the polar areas and we call them polar cyclones. And some of them break off from the polar fronts and move into the temperate latitudes with cloudy areas and so on. And these can sometimes start dust storms because of the strengths of the winds. Uh, but these are in the temperate latitudes. We we uh, refer to them as uh, as uh, just as cyclones, you know, temperate latitude cyclones that originate from the North Polar Front. But you, you, as you recall, if you listen to the Weather Channel, when the jet stream is sweeping down over North America, storms happen. You know, air masses are on the move and they interact at their edges with great storms. And that's what we see on Mars at the, in addition. So yeah. a dust storm can happen any time on Mars and you never, any time of the year, uh, the really big ones tend to be uh, in late, tend to start in late spring or early summer, uh, but they too can start at odd times. And the last big one we had, it's embarrassing not to remember this exactly, but it started as I, I think, uh, you know, in, in, in an unusual season, a okay. couple of apparitions ago, very unusual season. And it was a, it was a planet encircling dust storm obscured the entire planet. So. I think I, I remember that. Yeah. But from what I remember, a lot of these are seasonal though. Mars has seasons just like the earth, but right. yeah. Cause the weather pattern, the polar caps tend to grow and shrink that type of thing as well. Okay, so you mentioned the dust storm that's currently on Mars. What other things are happening on Mars that observers, if they start looking now, should be looking for? Well, goodness. Uh, we've, you know, the, the problem with this is that, uh, with, with the question is that there are always, there are frequently clouds on Mars. Mm -hmm. and, and we like to document them. And uh, in long term, we like to document where they occur and how often, you know. Um, so there, you may get lucky and see a cloud, you know. Okay. There has been a peculiar cloud on Mars uh, uh, located in just uh, south of the equator, uh, halfway between Certus Major and uh, Tyrrhenium Mari. And this this started as a cloud, and after a while, it just became a white spot, and it was uh, bright in red, green, and blue, which is inconsistent with a cloud. Clouds are usually definitely brightest in blue. Dust storms are brightest in red. So this is very peculiar, and uh, uh, we've had a difference of opinion about what this cloud is. <laughs> okay. Does it represent snow? For example, it could have been that there was a 
a heavy storm there and it snowed on the surface. And that's why this white spot lingered for a week and it's gone now. Uh, I've previously wrote about the 2007, 2008 apparition that I had a couple of cases that it snowed on Mars. You know, a big storm passed and left behind a light surface that uh, hmm. uh, the features of which uh, were inconsistent with dust or cloud. And it was probably on the surface and it was left behind by a storm. And that suggests snow. And the snow is likely to be water ice, not carbon dioxide. Hmm. So, but these things do happen and it may have happened again uh, on, uh, in early September. Interesting. Now you mentioned looking at Mars through different colors. You're talking about color filters, that type of thing. And, and because I, I know when I look at planets, I always use color filters because the pen and the ones you use brings out different details, like you mentioned. Right. So what, yeah. what, what color filters bring out, like you mentioned the, the red and, and, the, and the blue filters, yeah. what other filters could we use to look at Mars? Let me say firstly, that if you're observing visually, the color filters need not be expensive. Um, but if you're observing uh, with an imaging camera, the color filters are expensive because they're hard to make. The imaging cameras are more demanding of your filters. The old Rattan filters are fine for visual observing. And uh, in looking at Mars, if you use a red filter, it really makes the contrast stand out because it lets all the red of the deserts in, you know, uh, looking bright. And the, uh, the blue or green areas uh, don't have as much red light reflected, so they look darker. And so mm. the, the contrast on the surface of Mars is greatly increased by red, a red filter. Okay. Um, a blue filter, um, if, you, if you get a strong blue filter, like a, a, the W47, which is what I recommend, is the W47, W stands for Rattan. Mm -hmm. old, old uh, filter that uh, Kodak bought out the Rattan company back in the early 1900s and continued to use the Rattan name on their filters. But the Rattan 47 filter, or W47, it, I, I think of as a violet filter. Yeah. And uh, it makes clouds bright and the rest of Mars dark. And ordinarily through it, you can usually see virtually none of the albedo features of Mars. That is the surface features. You can't see them uh, because all that light is uh, scattered by the atmosphere and the violet filter will show what's in the atmosphere and clouds reflect brightly. So you see clouds best. If you're looking for clouds, look for them with a violet filter. Okay. Yeah. That violet filter is pretty dark. I use that when I do uh, Venus observations, because it just cuts down that light. And right. that's when you can start seeing the cloud de details again also, in Venus. I've, yes. I've also used it for Venus. And I, I really think that sometimes you can see details in the clouds uh, with the W47 filter on Venus that you can't see with other filters. So I, I, it's worth I, I agree with that. Yeah. 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 So you talked about imaging. Um, the types of the observations you're looking for. So you want, you'd like images and what about visual observations as well? Uh, well, there are a number of uh, good artists who, uh, you know, Carlos Hernandez is famous for his wonderful right. drawings of Mars, you know, and there are a number of others we've gotten. Uh, oh, right, right now, let me just tell you that uh, 
Abel. No, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble. Paul Abel okay. in England is making wonderful colored drawings of Mars, and he gives good descriptions of what he's drawn and so on. I've been getting uh, regular drawings from uh, a Mr. Korn in Germany, and uh, Michael Rosalina is, is a good Mars artist, uh, and there are just a number of others. So, uh, but I, I just think that uh, drawings are always useful, mm -hmm. particularly if there's something going on on Mars. For example, right. if, if you have clouds, it's very helpful to know what they look like uh, by a, as seen by a Mars artist. Um, in addition to what they're like in, with images. And uh, that gives us, in fact, a, a sense of uh, correspondence with uh, classical observers of the past who never could image Mars, but always drew it. That's good. It's a good point of reference, too. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Very good. So it, it's coming up on opposition in a couple of months. Are your observations that you're receiving increasing? Yes. Yeah, we're getting a lot of them now. In fact, I probably got about, uh, I guess, about eight or ten of them today, and I haven't had, I've been busy, haven't had time to download them. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, now, for visual observers, you have observing forms online for, that people can download? Yeah. If you go to the Alpo website, uh, you'll find in one of the columns on the face page, uh, the Mars section, and in, if you go there and you'll find another column of uh, things to click on, and among them is the uh, report form. Great. For people who wish to make drawings, and let me say one other thing: we uh, we like to see if if people can perceive something called blue clearing. That is, with the violet filter or W forty seven filter, observing visually as they look at Mars, can they detect albedo features? Now, this sounds like a peculiar question because I just stated that you can't see albedo features through the W forty seven filter. But every now and then you can. And uh, there are uh, some theories about this. And what we want, and, and the problem is that I have, it, let me say firstly that the most prominent theory is that it's a, it it's a, uh, doesn't exist. There's no such thing as blue clearing. And blue clearing being the times when you can see albedo features through the violet filter. We say that blue clearing is occurring. And uh, we like to see people try to document that and report uh, if they detect some degree of albedo features. And we like people to rate it on their own scale because everyone's perception is different. We like to say there's zero blue clearing or it's a one, two, or three. That's kind of what we do in a subjective way. And uh, we long-term, we wish to uh, coordinate all these things uh, in an article and we'll see if it is associated with things like uh, the declination of the sun or the earth in the Martian sky and uh, the elongation of the uh, sun, uh, I mean, of Mars uh, from the sun in the sky. Uh, that is the closeness to opposition, things like that. We just want to see if it has any, any uh, associations with uh, physical parameters of Mars that have not yet been proven. Okay. Now, by albedo features, you mean like surface details? That's correct. Okay. All right. Because normally you would just notice the clouds with the violet filter, right? That's right. Okay. Okay. Very cool. All right. I will I will do that when I get my telescope out and look at Mars this year. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Well, is there anything else you want to share about yourself or the Mars section? 
Well, let me think. <laughs> you know, that, I think that pretty much covers it. The problem with Mars is that it's overwhelming. I mean, mm -hmm. if I were to, I, I wrote, uh, you know, one apparition, apparition report of Mars, and it was 52 pages long. <laughs> it's the longest article ever published in the JALPO. It's, it's as though, uh, you know, I know that nobody read it because it because it's too long, and so they're completely unfamiliar with all the phenomena I described. You know, so you're the re you're the reason the journal's now 100 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, hasn't Ken talked to you about that? <laughs> well, he said if you write another one, make it shorter. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Ken right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, Roger, this has been great and amazing and wonderful, and I wish you a lot of luck with your. Uh, Mars section this year. I think it's going to be very dynamic, and uh, hopefully we don't have a global uh, dust storm on Mars where we get clouded out on CNN. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That can sort of ruin the apparition that nobody can see any albedo features because the dust is in the way. That's right. And I'll put links in the show notes to your email address if people want to get a hold of you, and okay. also links to the uh, Mars section of the Alpo as well. Yeah. All right. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thanks for chatting with me today. It was my pleasure, Tim. Good to see. Good to see you. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank Roger Venable for coming on and talking to us about Mars in 2022. We upload a new episode of The Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. And you can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Echo, Spotify, and yes, we're also on our YouTube channel. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving up to $35 a month where you receive one year's membership to the Oppo and producer credits. And with that, I'd like to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer for their continued generous support. Thank you very much. The link for Patreon is link for the Oppo is in the show notes. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at observers NB pod. Until next time, I hope you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>